You all ready to go to wilderness school? Sure. Oh, yeah, I like it. Uh, some people over there didn't look like they were ready. I feel like a doctor today, right? You're going to feel a little bit of pressure, right? That means it's going to hurt like the dickens, right? Um, now, this will be good for all of us. We're in the book of Numbers on Sunday morning. And if you want to remember the book of Numbers, it's, it's this simple, right? It's the story of redemption. God delivers his people out of Israel. The goal is the land of Canaan, what we would know as Israel, or the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, the problem is to get from Egypt to Canaan, you have to go through the, yeah, the wilderness. By the way, the wilderness, the root word is uninhabitable. None of y'all ever been in the wilderness. You go camping, that's not the wilderness when you go to a hot dog stand like 100 yards away. The wilderness is extreme heat in the day, it's unbearable. It's extreme cold at night, unbearable. No water, no food. Uh, God never intended anyone to live in the wilderness. Now here's why we study the Old Testament. Uh, as we look back at this congregation, right? They were a congregation. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10 says, we can learn lessons about our spiritual journey. So our spiritual journey begins here, right? When you accepted Christ as your savior, and if you haven't done that, we can talk to you about that. Not when you were born or when you thought you were a Christian. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you began a spiritual journey uh, that will lead you, if you learn anything from the series, it's not leading you to heaven. You're all gonna get to heaven, don't worry about it. The day you accepted Christ, it was guaranteed you're gonna go to heaven. Where we're going is the same place they were going, we're going to the place where we maximize our potential. The land of Canaan for you and me is the place of full devotion to Christ. It's, why, it's where we find out who God made us to be, why we were put on this planet, why we have gifts and talents. For every man in this room, this is the place where manhood is maximized. For every woman in this room, this is where womanhood is maximized. Forget what's going out in our culture. It's a mess out there. There's something beautiful about being a man, and there's something beautiful about being a woman. Galatians says there's no male or female, there's no Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ, understand that, but the beauty that God made physically, spiritually, and emotionally is wonderful. And that's why when the two become one, it becomes a glorious thing. Canaan is the land where marriages are maximized. Parenting's maximized, businesses are maximized. This is the land where we reach full potential. Now, here's what you need to understand. God has given us access to these things. We're not gonna lay on a couch and God's not gonna come along with grapes and drop them in our mouth. That's not what happened to Israel. That's not what's gonna happen to us. Uh, we inherit these things by faith. If you wanna read a comparison to the book of Numbers, it's the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter four, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, that's Canaan, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. You all thought the gospel started with Matthew, right? No, the good news came to this congregation in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them it was never mixed with faith in those who believed it. And God said, you'll never enter my rest. 
So the walk we have now is a walk of faith. You and I are walking by faith, and in Hebrews 11, we reach that wonderful crescendo, verse 1, where it says, faith is the substance of things we're hoping for. It's the evidence of the things we can't see. So I want to start with a question. This will kind of bring us all to the center. What are you hoping for? What are you believing God for this morning? What are you living out by faith? In other words, if God doesn't intervene or if you're not trusting God, it'll never come to pass. What are you living for by faith? And if you're not living for anything by faith, you're not living the Christian life. If you could do everything on your own strength and your own power with your own resources, then we really don't need God. And we'll never see walls come down. We'll never see giants fall. And so whether it's individually or collectively, we are all moving to this place where we want to maximize our lives. Now, we all face in the journey something that we call the dip. Okay? Anybody ever been there? I'll bet you some of you are there right now. The dip is where in your Christian journey or in life, you just want to give up. You just want to quit. You just reach a place in life, whatever's going on, it's like, I just want to throw in the towel. Uh, I'm tired of this. It's a cul-de-sac, which is French for dead end. I just reached the dead end. And if you're in my generation, you'll never quit because winners never quit and quitters never win. We all heard that, right? Actually, that phrase is wrong. You know the smartest people in the world know what and when to quit? Sometimes you need to quit. Now, you can't quit the spiritual journey. But there are things we're doing where we need to quit doing them and then quit doing them the way we're doing them. That's a whole nother talk. But in a spiritual sense, we all hit the dip in the seasons of life. Israel on their journey would hit dips before they would get to the promised land. For a whole year, God has been building them up at Sinai. The law, the tabernacle, the manna, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, and they're ready to go. Moses tells us they have an 11-day journey to get from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, the promised land, and it took them 40 years. I'll say this every week, don't let an 11-day journey in the wilderness last 40 years. God never designed anyone to live in the wilderness. Does everybody understand that? When you travel the world and you look at extreme poverty, God never wanted anybody to live in uninhabitable places. Always put this in your mind. God always longs for abundance. He put Adam and Eve in a garden with abundance. The lamb was flowing with milk and honey. That's God. When you see something else, that's man. That's greed, lust, whatever you want to call it. So when we hit the dip, there's five things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that would keep us out or deny us access to the maximized life or the abundant life that Jesus talked about. Number one was lust. The second thing he said was idolatry. The third was fornication. The fourth is tempting Christ. And the fifth one is murmuring and complaining. Look at Numbers 11, verse 1. It said, now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. When we complain, God's not happy. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them. This was the fire that was to show his presence, now burned among them, and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. 
People cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord. He's a better man than I am. And the fire was quenched. And so he called the name of the place Taberah because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we freely ate in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Had to be a lot of bad breath in that camp. But now our whole being is dried up, and there is nothing all except this manna before our eyes. Uh, when I get to heaven, I want to interview this crew. Because um, I've never seen a miracle. Have you? I, some of you have, right? I mean, I've seen great things. I've never seen a bona fide miracle. They had a miracle six days a week, twice on Saturday. Um, God had this cooling cloud, this burning fire for heat. They wake up in the morning, there's ready-made meals called manna. And I mean, gosh, they saw a miracle every day of the week, which tells me that everything can become familiar. Everything. Become a Christian, church is new, you come, you love it, you love God, you love the preacher, you love the worship, and then five years go by and 10 years go by, and, and that which we loved, we get so familiar. The worst thing about familiarity is familiarity, right? And so now the manna becomes regular to them. It just becomes second nature. And listen, not only was God giving them manna, Moses writes in Deuteronomy, their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. So I picture 40 years later, these kids that go into the promised land, these grown men, they're like six, seven now with these little baby booties that expanded to like size 14. You know, God was their tailor. God was their dentist. God was their doctor. And these five things kept them out of the land. Let's go through them real quick and then we'll get to something more positive. The first thing that kept them out was lust. Now, as soon as we hear lust, we think pornography or sexual sin. Uh, lust is far more reaching than that. Let me give you a definition. Uh, the definition of lust, which is desire, intense craving it says here, is the satisfying of self at the expense of God and others. The satisfying of self at the expense of God and others. Now, there's nothing wrong with satisfying yourself. There's nothing wrong with buying something for yourself or treating yourself well. That's wonderful. But God is love, and love, listen, always gives. I talked last week about creative ways of giving. Hope you put that into action last week. God's a giver. God loves to give. Lust longs to get at the expense of others and God. So, so sexual sin can be a part of this, like pornography. Pornography breaks the heart of God, first of all, because everything you're looking at is fake, right? So movies are fake, right? They're just celluloid running at 8 millimeters or 16 millimeters. Nothing's really there. And it breaks the heart of God because he never created a man or a woman to be an object lesson. He created human beings with feelings and, you know, desire and emotions and all those things. Uh, it hurts our partners, our future partners. Uh, what about our lifestyle? What about when we crave to keep up with the Joneses? And maybe we don't have the means. It can hurt others, right? Certainly hurts God. 
when we go into debt? How about alcohol? You know, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Uh, you know how selfish that was on my father's part? We never had a vacation. Now my grandparents took us away and all that, but we never had a family vacation on our own. So his drinking hurt us, and I'm sure it hurt God and himself. Um, you realize pastors can be lustful, and I'm not talking about sexual. They can desire to have things that other quote-unquote successful churches have. And they could desire to build buildings and take a congregation through something they should never do and put the church in debt. And you've all seen those things. This affects us at every level. Now, here's what boggles my mind. Israel, on their journey where this intense craving came, three days. Three days. Three days into the journey, they're already mumbling and complaining and they're full of desire. And verse four gives us an indicator why. It says a mixed multitude was among them. You ever read that and wonder what it is? The translation is a riffraff. <laughs> you know what that is, right? We gotta get rid of this riffraff. What's a mixed multitude? Well, think about this. Um, they've been in Egypt for 400 years. You know how the story goes. Uh, Hebrew women were probably really attractive to Egyptian men, right? And vice versa. And then what about the Passover? You know, now they're, they're taking all this spoil from Egypt and they're leaving and there's probably Egyptians that wanted to go and they probably picked up people along the way. And so by the time they get in the wilderness, they're a mixed congregation. And that's exactly what the New Testament is. Jesus said that the devil's going to sow tares among the wheat. Now the mistake, and this is what everybody tries to do, and you can go out and look at websites ad nauseum at this, there are ministries who have dedicated themselves to pulling out tares, and Jesus said we should never do that. Uh, my goal is let's go after the wheat, okay? But in any congregation, you know, Jesus said you're going to have people who, who got caught up in a moment, they're excited, or they think God's going to bless them. You're going to have people among thorns and thistles, and then there's going to be a group who are gonna produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. So whoever this mixed multitude was, they yielded to what the Bible says, intense craving. So when they hit the dip, they gave in to desire, right? All they had to do was last eight more days, make it through, they would have saw great results. I think there's a lesson here. In the book of Revelation, John sees a scroll, and he's told to eat the scroll. And when he eats the scroll, he said it was bitter to the taste, but it was like honey going down. What was God teaching them in wilderness school? That man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Moses said, look, you're coming into a good land where you're going to dwell in houses you didn't build, and you're going to live in abundance, and there's going to be a tendency to forget God there and forget his word. This was a lesson for all time that the word of God could sustain them. We live in an atmosphere today where the mixed multitude craves what I call spiritual substitutes, where it's not necessarily the word of God they crave, but everything else. And some churches give into this with performance and uh, entertainment. And listen, let me say this. I believe in the arts with every fiber of my being. I think Christians should reclaim the arts. We use the arts here. 
Um, I heard one pastor say, we'll do everything short of sin to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are creative ways to do that. But at the end of the day, nothing replaces the word of God to go into a human heart and transform a life. Beware of religious substitutes. And that's what the people were craving. Now, watch what God does. Verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side all around the camp. About two cubits above the surface. That's about three feet. And the people stayed up all night and day and gathered the quail. In other words, they just, I mean, they were just stockpiling it. Verse 33, and while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was roused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague, and he called the name of that place Kibroth Havatah. Remember that name, the graves of lust. God gave them what they desired. Now, God is, he's genius. He's our dad, right? God knows our proclivities. So he gives them manna, a little wafer cookie, just take the little wafer cookie and you eat it. God said, look, don't try and store it. He gives them meat up to their knees, and they do what we did in the pandemic with toilet paper. <laughs> right? Uh, I worked for the Boeing Company before we started this church, and we used to have a family day. Your kids could sit at your desk and look at helicopters, and it was such a cool day. And then you go to the cafeteria and eat a meal. And what they would do is they would lower the prices like in half, right? So every year was normal. Someone had the great idea to make the food free one year. Oh my gosh. Like the, the place where you would open up to get your drinks, the guy almost cut my hand off. There were hot dogs piled up to here. Give anybody anything free and entitlement, this is what happens. And they all died. They couldn't make it through the dip. The lesson learned here, Paul said that I've abounded and I've abased and all things I learned to be content. When you hit the dip, you don't need to quit. Sometimes you need to reevaluate. Uh, how did I get here? Was it poor choices? Was it a season of life? Were there outside forces that le led me here? You know, was it desire? Is there something different I need to do? And then maybe there are some things you need to quit. Uh, one thing that would be really good quitting is to try and be somebody you're not. I have an anonymous quote I put up on my computer. It says, maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything that isn't you so you can be who you were meant to be in the first place. God has a place of maximized potential for every one of us, and it doesn't look like anything anybody else has. The second thing that denied the maxis, and this will be much shorter, is idolatry. I think we all know what idolatry is. It's not little statues, right? They just represent what we desire or give devotion to. So, you know, we think people were dumb in the Roman Empire. They had statues. Uh, if anybody ever dig, digs up our civilization, they'll look at little Mercedes-Benz emblems on your on your car, or a Nittany lion, or a star on a helmet, something like that. 
Idolatry is a value system that we create in which we esteem something to be more worthy of our devotion than our devotion to God. Power, prestige, education, money, popularity, ego. Ego's edging God out. How about kids and family? My gosh, so many people have kids and family on a pedestal and, and, and idols. It's unbelievable. Um, I was talking to a gentleman years ago, and all he would talk about is his kids. I said, can I give you a piece of advice? They're going to be gone one day. 17, 21, in our culture, maybe 30, I don't know. Um, are you going to have a relationship with God? Or are you going to have ministry to be involved in? All idolatry involves sacrifice. If I'm going to climb the corporate ladder, I've got to sacrifice something. If I'm going to you know, give myself to hobbies at a high level, I've got to sacrifice something. You know, I think everything needs to be in balance. And for Israel, here's the weird thing. We need to remember this. Whenever you're out of balance in this deal, in a value system, your mind plays tricks on you. It really does. Right away, because they had some idealized lifestyle, some idolatry, uh, they remembered a life they never had. When did they do anything for free in Egypt? We ate freely, they said. They, they weren't free. But your mind will play tricks on you when you're involved in idolatry. Fornication, uh, sexual sin, I don't think we need to go through that. Tempting Christ is strange. What does that mean? Tempting Christ is demanding that God do what is contrary to his will or inconsistent with his character. A lot of people pray these kind of prayers where they tempt Christ. Uh, you remember the thief on the cross, the other thief? The other thief who was in earshot of Jesus said, look, I got a plan. If you're the son of God, you get off the cross, then you get us off the cross. Sounds good, right? But that would have nullified salvation for like billions. And so we tempt Christ anytime where we demand God do something that's not in our pay grade, right? Now look, I believe we should pray for every sick person. The Bible tells us that. But when a sick person dies, we need to do what David did. He rose up and he ate. He said, while the child was alive, the Lord was gracious. Uh, somehow the Lord must have wanted the child. And so sometimes we pray these really inconsistent prayers. And then finally, murmuring, complaining. Um, whenever you're caught in idolatry and lust, you generally murmur and complain because you're never satisfied. So hopefully you can go through that checklist and see maybe you're being denied access for some of those reasons. Paul said, let them be examples to us. Let's get to something more positive. Um, they get to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is like right here. The hardest part of any journey is when you're almost there, right? <laughs> they can see into the land. Moses comes up with this idea to send a reconnaissance team in. So he picks a leader of every tribe, which I think these would be really smart guys, sends them into the land for 40 days, and they bring back a report. Uh, look at chapter 13, verse 25. It says, they returned from spying out the land after 40 days, and they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. 
And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. I got an object lesson here. They told him and said, you're right, the land you sent us flows with milk and honey. Here's the proof. Man, that's, Moses is probably feeling really good. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and large. We saw descendants of Anak there, giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Flashlights, the Termites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. Wow, there's a lot of bad people in this land. Now, this is the majority report, okay? Now, we need to listen to these people, okay? Being honest. Ten of them, and I think Moses would have picked ten really intelligent people, um, are giving a report. I think that report should be looked at. I think it should be analyzed. When we built this building, this was 24 acres of raw, raw land. We were entering a recession. Uh, we had just taken on more expense by going to a downtown theater and media. Uh, we had a board of about eight people. We expanded it to 20 for the building team. And we were relying on the input of these men. Now, one of the things you have to factor in is um, belief versus unbelief. This is tricky, okay? Whenever you're facing a dip and God's called you to something, there's faith, there's unbelief, there's a lot in between. So you gotta look through all this, right? The minority port was filled with unbelief. They acknowledged that the land it was exactly what Moses and God said, and whenever you're Looking at things from the human viewpoint, you will always go to the obstacles first. So when we have meetings around here, I say, look, guys, obstacles second. Let's talk about what we can do first. Because we can solve a lot of obstacles, okay? And so you go down the viewpoint. And to me, the bottom line for Moses should have been, yeah, but at the end of the day, this is what God called us to do. And guess what? The alternative is the wilderness. <laughs> Uninhabitable place, so we may as well go. Now, there were two who brought a minority report. Caleb and Joshua, verse 30, said to Moses, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up said, we are not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are great in stature. We saw the giants, the descendants of Anak there, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Whenever you're walking in unbelief, you will have a caricature of yourself that you made up in your own mind. All we are is stinking grasshoppers in our own sight, and that's the way they see us too. You know what the reality was? The people in the land were afraid of them because they heard the report from Egypt. See, God had gone before them. And remember, God was the one who was gonna drive them out. The minority report is, yeah, there are fortified cities, there are giants, we can overcome. So when we built this building, 
It was a Wednesday night in our old building, and I sat around with those 20 team members. And I said, here's the deal, guys. We're going to go around the room, and we're not building this building unless everybody agrees. And I thought the room would be split. And every man said, let's do it. And at the end of the day, I said, okay, then we're all in. And that's faith. It's not presumption, right? Presumption is, let's go, and we have no money. That's presumption. You should probably just quit, okay? But faith says, God's called us to this. Yes, there are obstacles we can overcome. The recession came. We rebid the church, saved almost three-quarters of a million dollars. Uh, the rest is history. wasn't easy, but we watched God move. We saw a lot of God things. Uh, I've been on a Winston Churchill kick, mainly because I've read books about Churchill, but three movies in particular, The Finest Hour, Dunkirk, and The Imitation Game. This guy amazes me. Every single guy in his cabinet was against him. Uh, what he was up against, unthinkable. No man, I think, could have gone for it. Churchill said, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, but an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. God hasn't called us to be pessimist or optimist. He's called us to walk by faith. See, the reality was God was going to bring the walls of Jericho down. God was going to be the giant slayer. All God was asking us to do was trust. What did Churchill know? Uh, he'd rather go up against an enemy than have the Nazis come into Westminster Abbey. That was the alternative. The alternative here was the wilderness. When God says to go, you go. And you look at things, not through the human viewpoint, but from the divine viewpoint. We're not grasshoppers, we're mighty through God. We're not grasshoppers, we have the shield of faith, the, the armor of God. We are more than conquerors through him. That's why we read the word of God. When we read the word of God, we find out who we are. Jacob and uh, Joshua and Caleb didn't think they could do it in their own strength. They thought they could do it in God's strength. We can go and we can overcome. They believed and who God said they were. When we hit the dip, we have one or two choices. Play it safe or press through. We can press through and see the other side. We can see what Noah saw by faith and what Abraham saw by faith and what, what the great patriarch saw by faith, what so many people through the church age have seen by faith. You know, we're in a time now where everybody's talking about the culture, the culture of this, the culture of that, the culture of this, the culture of that. I told you last week, the, the walls that we're seeing in our culture are ideological. And if we want to see those walls come down, we're going to have to rely on God. Because can I tell you this? Our tribe is small. You know, the church has a pea shooter in the natural, and we've got a nuclear arsenal facing us. The world has more money, more strength, more intelligence, more numbers. But we have the power of God. And through the centuries, Jesus said, the church will prevail. The gates of hell will never come against it. The land of Canaan is where problems get solved, relationships restored, marriages healed, 
and life is maximized. Are there obstacles? Yes. But this is where God wants us to live. He wants us to live in the land where we see him move. And it's not going to be easy. I'm still looking for that verse. The Christian life's going to be wonderful. It's going to be easy. Uh, Jesus said, in this life, you're going to have tribulation. He said, we're going to live the abundant life. But the abundant life, again, isn't where we just sit down and people kind of feed us grapes and everything works out. In this life, we're going to have to go through dips. We're going to have to go through obstacles. We're going to have to walk by faith. And sometimes we're going to have to redirect, right? Sometimes we're going to have to look and say, you know what? We've got to tweak a few things. Maybe we need to quit this. Maybe... Look, as a church, you know, one of the things I say when people want to start a new ministry, what are we killing? What ministry that we're doing here, its time has come and gone? Because God pours new wine in new, new wineskins. Sometimes we have to quit. Most of the time, God wants us to press on. If you're in a dip today, the good news is, if you persevere with God, you will see great things on the other side. I promise you. I have scripture to back it up. I have my life, other people. God is on the other side with great things. If you knew how many dips I've been in, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, my New Year's resolution was to read all books. And uh, I picked up Seth Godin's book called The Dip. It's a secular book. And began to reread it and just chuckled. Because a few years ago, I was in a dip. And here's the weird thing about a dip when you're in my place. Everybody's watching. And everybody can feel it. Now, it's almost like collectively we're here. Nobody likes it. How do you think Moses felt through the dip? Probably felt insecure, bad leader, all those things. And the reason I chuckled is because God brought me through the dip. I changed a few things, made a few decisions, and let me tell you, the other side is beautiful. It's wonderful. Parenting has dips. Marriage, look, you might be in a dip. My wife and I have a marriage today, and the kids we have today, because we went to conferences, we read books. No one dropped grapes in our mouth. No one said, here's some pixie dust for the abundant life. Here's your maximized potential. It doesn't work that way, guys. The Bible's kind of paradoxical in this. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And then Paul said, I buffet my body as a soldier. You know, we rest in the promises of God. But then Paul said in Romans, we should be immovable, always abounding in the things of God till the day we die. 